You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight, we will continue our series talking about Christian point of view. And tonight, we're talking about the Christian point of view of our bodies. Um, You know, we haven't been able to cover everything that Christians think about self or work so far. There's just things that we don't have time for. We we haven't been able to get to, uh, but there are other things that we could say about both of those things. And I want to communicate to you that there are plenty of things that we could say that Christians believe about our bodies that we're not going to be able to get to tonight, too. So inevitably, you know, we have to focus in on something. And so tonight, we're going to focus in on a particular passage of Scripture, and we're going to get right into it, and uh, kind of as we walk through it, we'll, we'll bring in some other things, for sure, other Scriptures that uh, kind of line up with the things that we're talking about from this passage, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, uh, and while you're turning there, I'll just say we're going to try to keep it somewhat simple tonight with only two points, okay? Only two points. But under those points, there's going to be quite a bit of things. So uh, just to, to give you a heads up, as you look through 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, first point is going to be much longer than the second point. So if you go through the first point, you're like, hey, this is really dragging. There's a whole lot here. I don't know how we're going to sit through a second point. Trust me, the second one will be a little bit faster than the first. Uh, but I communicate all those things, just kind of give you a heads up. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, going 12 through 20. Okay. It says, all things are lawful to me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The first point I want us to see from this text, is that our bodies were made by and for the Lord. Our bodies were made by and for the Lord. Okay, Colossians 1 uh, tells us some things about creation in general. Okay, so Colossians 1, 16 and 17 say, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If that's true of all things, then it is certainly true of our bodies, that our bodies were made by him and for him, and he is the one who upholds them. Okay, so our bodies were made by God. He designed their complexities. He put us together the way that he saw fit and the way that he knew would work. It's interesting that even Charles Darwin, the father of the theory of evolution, had a hard time believing or, or understanding, really, how something as complex as the human eye could have come about through evolution. 
And we know a whole lot more about our complexities and our bodies now than he did then. God has created all these complexities, and he upholds them. Not only does he, as he created and upholds all these things, but he has authority over them. Okay, so he has authority over him. This first part of verse 13 from our passage tonight, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. God will destroy both one and the other. You know, what he's saying is like, God is the one who is overseeing and over all these things, over your bodies. He is the one who upholds them, and he can put an end to them whenever he sees fit. They're his, okay, and his to have control over. In Matthew 10, 28 through 30, Matthew, or Jesus says this, says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He has authority over our bodies. He knows them better than we do. He knows every hair on our head. He can count them all. He knows how many are there. And so he has the authority over these things. He knows them well. And he goes on in verse 13. Paul is communicating uh, to us this truth that the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here's what I think is going on in this first part. Like, how do you go from food to the sexual morality thing? Notice how this thing, you know, is about food is in quotations. Okay, I don't know if it is in your translation to mine. It is in, it is in quotations. It says, you know, the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's in quotations. And it leads us to, to think that maybe the Christians, or the Christians in uh, Corinth or the people in Corinth were used to saying something like this. That maybe this is a phrase that they use, that food is meant for the body and, and the stomach, or food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And it makes us think that maybe they were used to saying, well, look, we have these appetites and we just satisfy them. Okay, I'm hungry, I eat. And maybe they were using the same logic to talk about sex. I have sexual desire, therefore I fulfill it. You know, I have these appetites, just like body, you know, the stomach needs food, you know, I have this sexual desire, I should satisfy that. And essentially, they were prone to believe that it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. They had this mindset, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I mean, they're just bodies after all, right? There's actually a line of thought in the early church that circulated around called Gnosticism. You don't need to know that, that term. But one of the things that they believed is that our bodies really didn't matter. That nothing physical mattered, just the spiritual. And I think that that same kind of thing runs in the current of our own culture sometimes, is that you know, we're something different than our bodies say, right? Or uh, what's really true about me is what's internal, what's, what's in here, not so much what is out there. And Paul is saying, no, 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 your bodies matter to God. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Jesus literally came in a body, so he doesn't see them as nothing. He doesn't see them as inconsequential. He came in a body himself, and then he was raised up physically. When he died and he was raised, he came back in a resurrected body, a physical body. And verse 14, according to that, says that we will also be raised in a physical body. So our bodies, we learned a few things here, that our bodies are not bad things. And they're not inconsequential things. They're part of who we are. They're part of God's design of us. Okay, so our bodies are good. God created them as good, and he designed them. But sin has affected everything, including our bodies. Sin has affected everything, including our bodies. Romans 8, 20 through 23. 
says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our bodies have been affected by sin. Sin entering the world has messed up some things. So there's things that go wrong with our bodies. Okay, we look at it and we go, okay, well, our, my body's supposed to be good, but I get sick, right? If our bodies are good and they're designed by God, then why do they wear down over time and eventually die? It's because of sin. Sin has broken this good thing, much like it has broken every good thing that God has given us. And so these things happen. Disease happen. Diseases happen. Accidents happen. People's own sins affect their bodies. Sometimes people sin against us, and that affects our bodies. You know, we may be harmed by ourselves or harmed by someone else, but on account of sin, we, can, uh, we experience these things. We experience the effects of sin, and not only sin, but a broken world because of sin. Okay? And on account of sin, too, we can become really self-aware of our bodies. You know, it's interesting the initial response after having sinned of Adam and Eve. You go back to Genesis 3. The initial response, the first thing they did when they realized they had sinned was they realized they were naked and they needed to cover their bodies. So this whole idea of being shamed or feeling shame in our bodies starts then, way back after the very first sin. It's no surprise that we too feel the sense of shame about our bodies at times. And questions about our bodies, questions about why things happen, why we feel the way we do, whatever. But nevertheless, despite this, we need to understand that what God has given to us individually is not without purpose. What God has given to us in our physical bodies is not without purpose. And the the way that our bodies are constructed and the things that uh, maybe we feel like are wrong with them, or even the things that we feel good about, about ourselves, they're given by God. God has formed us the way he desired to form us. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What God formed in the womb, and even the things that he has allowed in your life thus far, are not without purpose. So your body as is, and the things that have happened along the way so that you've gotten to the place where you're at, are not outside of God's control and his design and his purpose. Even the things that you don't like about yourself, even the sicknesses and the things that you've been through, These things are not outside of God's control. He still has purpose, even for all the days that were formed for you when still there was none of them. And so we got to understand, like, what God has given us is is not in itself a bad thing. Yes, sin has caused us problems, and yet what we have, the bodies that God has given us, are his his design and his purpose. we got to understand, too, that Jesus has come to redeem even our bodies. Jesus has come to redeem even our bodies, not just our souls or our spirit. When he uh, 
fixes this relationship and reconciles us to the Father. It's not just our spirit or our soul that comes into right relationship with the Lord, but rather it is the body as well as our whole selves. Consider how amazing it is that Jesus took a body to himself. We talked about this, I feel like at Christmas around that time, but the idea that he was incarnated, he took on flesh, he became one of us, physical self and all, and he wasn't done with having a physical body after they put his to death. Because you recognize when you look back at the scriptures, you see that he came back to life in a physical body. And not only that, but he ascended to heaven in a physical body, and he is currently in heaven at the right hand of the Father in a physical body. He has every intention of bringing us back to life, according to verse 14, in physical bodies, eternal, immortal bodies. So we see that, you know, based on all these things, man, we see this from the text as well, that submitting our bodies to any other rule than God's, submitting our bodies to any other rule will have less than desirable results. And this should make sense that if our bodies were made by God, made to submit to God and live by his design under his authority, that abandoning that and giving ourselves to anything else, letting anything else dominate or rule us, is going to result in things that are less than our flourishing. God had purposes for this body. He made it. He knows what it's about. He knows what it's for. It's ultimately for him and for us to submit to anything else, let anything else rule over us and over our bodies is going to lead to less than desirable results. What might, what might we be willing to rule, uh, allow rule over our bodies? What could rule over us? And we're not going to be able to talk about everything, but there are some things that we can hit. What might be the result of, of these things? That if we let something else rule over our bodies, what will be the result? Here's the thing. Any appetite can be something that rules over you or that you give yourself to its rule. Any appetite. Okay, so clearly in the text, we're going to talk about sexual morality. But he also starts with food. It's interesting. Paul mentions the food here, and then he switches over to sexual immorality, and then he talks about singleness and marriage in chapter 7, and then he comes back to food in chapters 8 through 10 of this letter to the Corinthians. And one big thing for Paul when he's talking about food is that believers shouldn't eat, or one, one big thing that he's trying to address is the thought that maybe believers should not eat food offered to idols. Okay, so back in the day, back in Corinth, there would have been temples, other places of of worship to false gods, and there might be food sacrificed or animals sacrificed to those idols. And he's saying, hey, he's trying to address the situation of maybe Christians, should Christians eat this food that maybe is sacrificed to an idol and then gets brought into the market. If you willingly and knowingly buy something that was an animal sacrificed to an idol and then you eat that food, are you committing idolatry? Anyway, that's the big question going on, and he's trying to address that. And he says that we know idols aren't real. We know they're not real gods, so it's not like eating the food originally sacrificed to an idol is itself idolatry, but just because eating this food uh, doesn't mean that we are, just, just because eating this food doesn't mean we are being idolatrous does not mean that we should eat it. Just because we could eat it doesn't mean that we should eat it. And ultimately what he's coming down to is that there are people who think it is a sin, other people who are looking on who think it's a sin to eat this food, and they see you as a Christian eating that, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, are they, are, they, are they worshiping this other God? And so it can be confusing for people, and what he's saying is like, hey, maybe we shouldn't. 
Maybe as Christians, if we know other people are going to look on and they're going to think it's sin, even if we feel like we have the freedom to do it, maybe we shouldn't. And that's what he's getting at when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not let my desire for this food have the best in me. Just because I want to eat this, and I think I can, doesn't mean I should. And he actually comes back to this same statement that we have in verse 12, in chapter 10, verse 23. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he says this same thing. He comes back to this same thing. And basically, it's like, don't let your ability or freedom to do something with a clear conscience cause you to hurt someone else and someone else's conscience. You know where this same kind of thinking comes into play today amongst Christians? Alcohol. I grew up in a home where alcohol was a sin. To take a sip of alcohol, sin. And so I, that's what I grew up thinking. Like, you cannot have any alcohol. It's a sin. I don't care if you're of age or whatever. That's not what a Christian does. And so as growing up, man, if I, if I saw somebody else having alcohol, I'm like, man, they, they must not love Jesus. And a lot of you weren't raised that way. Maybe some of you were. But here's the thing. I now do not think that drinking alcohol is sinful. But I don't drink. I just don't because it's not worth the damage done to somebody else's conscience if they feel like it's sinful and see me do it or know that I do it. So I don't do it, even though I don't think it's sinful. But not only that, not just because of appearances or whatever, but I also know that there's plenty of ways that drinking alcohol can lead to sin. You know, one of those ways is overindulgence. Overindulging in sin. We know that drunkenness is a sin. It's hard to know what the line is, right? How, how much can I drink before I feel really affected? How much is overindulgence? The thing is, the more you give yourself to anything, any appetite at all, the more you indulge in that, it becomes a lingering desire and even a need for it. Some of you know people who are there. Some of you are there. You have known people where you are there and you know the, the need for something. For me, honestly, sometimes I feel like, should I stop drinking coffee? becoming so dependent on caffeine or whatever. I don't want to be dominated by anything. Any appetite, if overindulged, will result in sin. Not only that, but the thing that you at first just dabbled with, at least in your mind, can easily come to rule you or enslave you. Look at Romans 6.16. Paul there says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves to, one who, to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You let any desire or an appetite for something rule you, and that's exactly what it will do. It will rule you and dominate you, and that's not what we're made for. And there's a particular appetite that this passage specifically points to, and one that is particularly enslaving, and that is sex, a desire for sex. There's a reason that Paul tells the Corinthians to flee sexual morality, because it in a way, somehow unlike and beyond what others are, can be particularly enslaving. Sexual morality, he says, is a sin against your own body. I'm not even entirely sure why that is or what that exactly means, but it seems that sexual sin is something more even than some other things. And I think it's because our whole selves are involved. Body, mind, soul. The whole thing. The whole self is involved. And when you sin in that area, you're hurting your whole self. And many of you know well how addictive sexual sin can be. 
it can absolutely enslave you. And the appetite for more is often insatiable, and no indulgent makes it fe- indulgence makes it feel any more appeased. There might be relief from the temptation, but it always comes back. It is insatiable, and it will not be appeased. Again, any appetite can do this to you. Any appetite can rule over you if you give yourself to it. Even the legitimate need for rest can come to rule you and make you complacent and lazy. So it's not just the sexual morality. I think that is something they particularly were dealing with. But any appetite, any desire, any physical feel or need that you might feel can come to rule you if you will allow it. The good news is you don't have to remain enslaved to it if you are. You don't have to. In Christ, you can be set free from sin and live for him instead the way that you were made to. Right after that verse in Romans 6, we read Romans 6, 16. Now here's 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now every single one of us has rebelled against the one true God's holy design for us. Every single one of us has, but praise be to God, he came himself, he took on flesh, living this life exactly according to the design, the holy design of his father, and then he willingly took the punishment on himself that we deserve because of our rebellion. And that is the message of the word that we've been given. This whole word is pointing to that, that you could not do it You were enslaved to sin, but now you can be set free because Christ was not enslaved to sin. He was tempted in every way just as we were, and yet without sin. But there's another message out there. There's another message out there. Our Western, hyper-individualized culture has another message for us. And it says, no one can tell you what to do with your body. Do whatever feels right to you. And let no one else tell you otherwise. Because it's really all about you. Don't listen to all that stuff from the Bible. And they'll say, is that really what God said? Maybe you can believe some of it, but not believe all of it. You know, is that really what he said? How can you be so certain that there even is a God? Maybe we can be our own gods. There was a song that I listened to uh, back in the day by uh, 30 Seconds to Mars. Anybody remember them? Is that the name of the band? I don't know, you guys don't even know. Anyway, it was a song about, it was called Kings and Queens. And it was like a hype song. And I'd listen to it when I like, went running and stuff, which I didn't do that often. But it's like I would listen to that song, but in the chorus it says, we were the kings and queens of ourselves or something like that. And the whole idea, you know, they're not believers, not a, not a, a band of Christians. The whole idea is like, we are our own gods. We rule ourselves. And that whole idea has has just invaded our culture. And they'll say, look, the Bible is outdated. It's out of touch. Do we really need religion anymore? Haven't we evolved past the need for that? And it says this, and it, it brings us these messages all the time, contrary to the message of what the Bible has said. You know, what if the Bible is out of touch just means we don't like what it says? Therefore, let's set it aside and live for ourselves. From a Christian point of view, the temptation to set aside what God has said 
and set up ourselves as the final authority has been around a long time. It's not new. It's the very reason we are where we are. They will experience the brokenness that we experience. This started in Genesis. Set aside what God has said. Did he really say that? You can be like God. You can be your own gods. You don't have to listen to him. And what, what did that lead to? Broken bodies, broken relationships, death, and more. It's nothing new. And it hasn't really gotten us anywhere we wanted to be. I mean, look around. Are we where we want to be? No, as, as humanity, we're not. We're, we're still not God. We're still not in control. We're still broken, and we still die. We're running after these things, and it's not getting us any better. Maybe the problem isn't with God, but with us trying to give our bodies and ourselves to anything and everything but him. You know, I was, uh, just the other night I was talking with a group of, of college guys, and, um, you know, we were talking about why I believe what I believe and how I can be so sure. And, man, I, it really just hit home. I feel like, you know, I just told them my story, like, here's where my hope is, and, and you know, this is where my faith is and where my trust is, and it's like, really, like, what else is there for me? Like, why, why is my hope all in the gospel? Why is my hope all in Jesus? Well, what else is there? Live for myself and die? Like, is, is that really what we should do? What if it were true at that point? And what if I believed that was true, and I, and, I, and I lived for myself, and then at the end of this vapor of a life that I lived for myself, I actually stood in front of God. And he looked at me and said, I gave you everything. I told you it all. And you ignored it. Like, what if that were the case? So what if I lived this life for myself, and then I die, and it's over? At least I lived a somewhat meaningful and a purposeful, in a direction kind of life. I'd rather give myself to this hope and live according to this word rather than the alternative. Because what happens when I, when I stand before God if this is all true? And it may seem too good to be true that there would be a God who loves us and gave himself for us. But man, I would rather give myself to that hope and live according to that than anything else. Because I believe with everything that I've got that I will see God in the end and I will be with him forever. I really believe that. That's where all my hope is. I believe what verse 14 says. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Jesus was here. According to all historical records, Jesus was a man. He existed. He was put to death. And then he left the tomb on the third day and they never found his body. They don't know where he is. If he's still dead, I don't think he's still dead. I think he was raised in a body and so will we be who put our hope in him. You know, the length of my life, the length of my life is way longer than the lifespan of this mortal body. Any one of us could die tomorrow. We don't know how many days we have, but the length of my life, I am certain, is longer than the lifespan of this body. Because Christ is just the first fruits of the resurrection. Later in this letter, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, 20 through 22. Says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
man, that's, that's it? That's where my hope is. My body was made by and for this Lord. I don't want to submit it to anything else because this is where my hope is. But how exactly does this happen? How exactly is this resurrection going, it's his resurrection going to mean my own? And here's where the second point comes in. In Christ, our whole selves have been united with him. Our whole selves have been united with him. There is a spiritual union when we put our faith in Christ. We are connected to Jesus forever, never to be separated again. We are tethered to him. And in the first week of this series, when we're talking about self, in Ephesians chapter 2, we said that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. How? I don't understand exactly. But right now, in Christ, I am seated with him in the heavenly places while I am still on this earth. And someday, in the not-too-distant future, that spiritual truth of me being seated with him is going to be wholly true, as in all of me will be with him. As in our whole selves, resurrection bodies and all, will be where he is. For now, we look to this word and we see that the spiritual union has taken place by grace through faith. And that spiritual union begins to play itself out in the present. It's not just a spiritual union that looks forward, says, well, one day we'll be like that, but in the meantime, we should just do whatever because that day, we don't know when that day is going to come. You know, I just you know, kind of live my life right now. No, the spiritual union begins to take effect right now in our minds and in our emotions and our attitudes and in our bodies. Romans 6, we've already talked about Romans 6 a little bit. If you go to 3 through 13, okay, we're not going to read all of that, but if you just, even if you just write it down, don't go there right now, but Romans 6, 3 through 13, we can't read all of that right now, but here's the gist. When you put your faith in Christ, your old self died with him, and a new self has been raised just as he was raised. Verse 11 says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The spiritual reality of your union with Christ is to be appropriated by you in everyday life. You are united with him. Consider yourself dead to sin now and alive to God. And therefore, begin to live this out. Live as though that is a reality, that is the defining reality of who you are and not what the world wants to tell you, whatever you feel is the defining thing about you. Instead, see that your union with Christ is the defining thing about you and begin to live that way. But let's be honest with ourselves. Even after being saved by Jesus, it is hard for us to not feel the same old ways and do the same old things that we would do even if we didn't know Jesus. It's hard still for us. It's not as though the spiritual union is something we feel all the time or that it's somehow now easy for us to do all these things. We don't feel completely new, not new enough to avoid those same temptations. But praise the Lord, as part of this union with Christ, God takes up residence within us through his spirit. Our whole self becomes the place where God dwells. He calls our body the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Right here in this, in this passage, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now, in Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The very real presence of God fills you up now. Where exactly? How does that work? I don't know. I can't explain it all. I don't have all the answers, but I know he's there. 
I trust that he's there because he said he was there. And he doesn't just sit idly by waiting on my body to die. And I can't wait till this one kicks the bucket so he can just go be in heaven and everything will be fixed. No, he starts working on us now to sanctify us. He's working at those misguided assumptions and those thoughts that don't align with what he has said and the truth, those attitudes and those words, those actions that don't align with his design. And he gets to work on our motivations. And regardless of how obvious his work in us is or how much we feel it in the moment, our whole selves are connected to Jesus right now. We are not our own, as verse 19 says in our text. We, he has redeemed us. He has bought us. So now you and I are meant to glorify God in our bodies, as verse 20 says from our text. Our bodies have always been made by him and for him. And now through Jesus, we have God in us, making it possible for us to actually live for him with our whole selves. So now we have a new reason not to indulge those appetites. A new reason not to submit to a self-centered approach to life in these bodies. Even if we didn't know Christ, one reason would be God has designed us a certain way. We are meant to live for him. Okay, so I don't want to do these other things because they're just going to fail me. But here's a new motivation. It's not just the recognition that these other things don't satisfy me or could enslave me. Now, it's that I've been set free. I've been set free, and I'm united with Christ, and now I'm the dwelling place for God. I have a new motivation. It's not just avoiding heartache. It's living for God, being the dwelling place of God when it comes to food and alcohol, things like that. I don't want to let it can control me. I don't want what I consume to distract or physically keep me from living for the Lord. You know, look what Paul tells the Ephesians in, in Ephesians 5.18. He says, do not get drunk, drunk with wine, for that's debauchery be filled with the Holy Spirit. In his mind, he's like, hey, look, you could be controlled by these other substances, rather be controlled by the Spirit. And that's what I want. I don't want to be controlled by anything. If alcohol would just distract me from living for the Lord, I don't want it. If it would distract somebody else from hearing the gospel from me, I don't want it. If, I, if eating these things is going to make me feel bad and make me physically incapable of doing what God has called me to do, then I don't want to eat those things. If eating this much is going to make me feel bad and not be able to do what I, what I need to do, then I don't want to eat that much. I don't want to be controlled by anything. I want to watch this temple that he is. He has said himself, I didn't make myself as temple. He made me as temple by coming in. And I want to take care of myself because there are purposes that God intends to accomplish through me. And I don't want to be responsible for this body being ill-equipped to do what he has called me to do. So I want to take care of it. You could go from here and talk about rest. You could talk about exercise, all that stuff. But let's just keep it to the fact that I don't want to give in to any appetite or desire, including laziness, to the effect that I cannot serve the purposes that God has called me to. And then you could go to, to, to sex. We already talked about how it's not going to satisfy, but this new motivation absolutely changes the game for sexual sin as well. There's something even more compelling that should keep us from giving our bodies up to sexual sin. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. You're like, well, I'm not tempted to go visit any prostitutes. Here's the thing. Sexual sin is sexual sin. And what you give into, if, I, if you sin in this way, you give your body to sexual sin, you drag the Spirit of God into your immortality or immorality with you. 
He is with you in all these things. Do you want to bring God into sexual morality? That's what he's saying would happen. No, I don't. I have a new motivation. I want to be the temple of the Lord. I don't want to, I don't want to drag Christ into sexual sin. It's a new motivation for me. If you were to go a little further on in this, in this letter, um, you would see this, that we have another motivation and another, uh, another purpose reigning in our minds and bodies on the whole. Simply put, we just don't have the same purposes anymore on the whole. We don't live for ourselves. We don't have the same purposes as our, as our culture. And if you go on and you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 23, like I mentioned earlier, okay, it's the same wording as chapter 6, verse 12, saying all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he says all things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then he says in verse 24 of chapter 10, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Rather than indulge the flesh, instead of being overly concerned about our own selves or our own bodies, whether in shame, in sin, in pride, rather than spend your focus on yourself at all, seek the good of your neighbor. And that's only one of the motivations. Then he goes on into 30, to verse 31. If you were to skip a little ahead in chapter 10, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All for the glory of God. So now, not only do I have these, like, I don't, I don't want to go after these things because they would enslave me. They're not going to leave me where I want to go. Not only do I want to be this temple of the Holy Spirit, I want, I want to be a place where God can dwell and me not take him into all kinds of sin. Not only is that true, now I have new motivation for all the things I do, and that is to not worry about myself, but rather seek the good of my neighbor and to seek the glory of the Lord in everything I do. So as a Christian, united with Christ, housing the Holy Spirit, our bodies have this new purpose. And as far as I can tell, the new purpose is not about us at all. It takes our eyes completely off of our own bodies and onto his purposes that he might want to work through us for the good of others and for the glory of God. That is what our bodies are about. So if you look at how you steward your body right now and you can't see how, you can't see how your use of it serves the good of your neighbors and brings glory to God, then maybe from a Christian point of view, there's a need for repentance. Hopefully, you can see some ways that God is using it for the glory, for his glory and for the good of others. But if you can't, or if there are ways that you could see that you can't, or that you aren't, there might be a need for repentance. And thanks be to Jesus, that is possible. Because he's right here to be with us through it all, and to help us through it all.